What would the world look like if decisions were made by the people for the people? Dow or Never is here to break down how DAOs are disrupting traditional power structures and transforming the way we interact. If you're ready, let's get into today's episode. Welcome to Dow or Never. This is the show to help you learn about the rapidly evolving world of DAOs and Web3. I'm Isaac Patka, co-summoner of Logos DAO. Today, I'm joined by Uli Devilel, Web3 IRL fashion maker and builder of an on-chain collection of physical artifacts and their stories, and Donatus Schomburg-Lipp, co-founder of Web3 Venture Lab 3.0 Labs. The three of us helped organize Dow Palace, a two-week residency that took place last month at Bukeberg Castle in Germany. Some quick background on Teddy and Uli. I met Teddy, that's Donatus, uh, at Art Basel 2021, where we started talking about DAOs. I had just been to Glitch, an art residency where I met Uli, and Teddy had attended the NF Castle, a Web3 event supporting art that was held at a cultural heritage site. And between all of those experiences of DAOs and art um, and collaboration and residencies, the idea of DAO Palace emerged. So now that the DAO Palace is actually over, um, are you surprised that it actually happened, Teddy, that we pulled it off? You could say that for sure. I think that one of the things that surprised me the most was just not that we managed to make it happen. I was quite confident that we would, or rather that it was such an overwhelming success as it was. And, uh, you know, to me personally, it's also a dream come true. I was, I was just talking to a friend. I haven't told either of you guys this, but I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday who I hadn't spoken to in three and a half years. And I told her a bit about Dow Palace. And she said, she's laughing. She was kind of exclaiming, saying, oh, this is so cool. You are always saying that you're going to turn your castle into an incubator. And so, you know, now it's happening. And I'm, I'm very, very excited to see where we're going to go on from here. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I just talking to some of uh, talking to you and your family at the event, it is cool how like, for decades, you guys have had this vision of like, this is a place for innovation. This isn't a place for just people to come and take pictures for the opening hours of nine to four, and then go and maybe occasionally have a wedding. Like this is a place for innovation coming together and uh, everybody seemed just thrilled that it was uh, that it was actually happening. Absolutely. The whole family was 100% on board and they were very touched by, you know, how it turned out. This was their vision as well as mine and they loved it. They wanted it to happen again. Uli, and anything that surprised you about how the event actually played out versus uh, what we maybe were thinking about in those early days? Actually, no. I think that it came together exactly as we sort of imagined it. And maybe I can't talk the collective we, but in my mind, I'm not surprised we pulled it off. And I'm not surprised that it happened in the way that it did. I think if I was surprised by anything, it was maybe, I really love the moment, uh, Teddy, when your mom told us how when she first married your father, it was her dream to bring artists and engineers and just a a diverse group of people to the castle and really give it life and activity and how what we were doing actually kind of realized the dream that she had had many years ago. So I think that was a nice surprise to know that this is something that has been sort of in the background of inspiration for your family for a long time. And it really connected this kind of lineage and history to this sort of future that we were talking about, which was very nice. One of the goals that we had for the event was to launch DAOESCO. Uh, Teddy, would you explain what DAOESCO is and, and share some information on, on, on how that launch is going? Yeah, absolutely. So DAOESCO is supposed to be the project that spins out from Dow Palace being pretty much a proof of concept for the idea that cultural heritage sites like the Bookerberg Castle can serve as incubation centers for academics, for creators, for entrepreneurs, for anybody who is looking to further the Web3 space. And the reason why it's called DAOESCO is because, you know, we were kind of looking at the 
history of such cultural heritage sites, in particular castles, which traditionally were always seen as sort of seats of authority. You know, for the grand majority of their existence, they were already incubation centers. You know, Mary Shelley was at Villa Diodetti in Geneva when she invented Frankenstein. You know, Friedrich Nietzsche would be at Villa Weimar and Carl Jung would uh, build Bonningen Tower to come up with some of his greatest ideas. And these centers were very much like what we were doing in Dow Palace, this kind of idea of bringing great minds together, not having an agenda, but letting ideas and synergies flow out from it. And so what we wanted to do is we wanted to reinvent what castles stood for. If they at some point in history were, you know, a place of authority, a place of incubation, but highly exclusive, and then in the second instance were more places of remembrance, places to look at the past and, you know, symbolize the past, but really be unproductive, really be museums, then we said that, you know, these cultural heritage sites 3.0 should be both inclusive and highly productive. And we saw it as being a renewal of UNESCO. We called it the People's UNESCO, and thus Daoesco, because all of a sudden we're giving these spaces to people of all diversity to come in, incubate, create, and actually make use of the space and bring new life into them, so that we're not only remembering what castles have stood for historically, but that they still are relevant and they can still add value to spaces like the Web3 space going forward. Now, at the moment, we're looking at building this out. So we want to create a network of cultural heritage sites which facilitate different types of incubation centers with events similar to the one that we just had at Dow Palace where people can come in, maybe they're focused on different themes, but that's all yet to be decided. And that in the long term, these cultural heritage sites could actually be a full year incubation center where members of the Dow could come and work and be alongside others who are like-minded and creative and brilliant to keep furthering the space. And so you bring brain power to these spaces. And at the same time, those that come to these sites can be inspired by the history that sort of created them and hope that, you know, this will give them the space that they need to actually build something great. I remember last year at uh, at Glitch, which is the NFT and artist residency at Chateau du Fay um, in, in Burgundy, um, I just, I had this feeling of, yes, this is some radical grouping of people that are getting together to to like wipe out some crazy ideas and have parties and fun and, and, and enjoy being with each other. But this felt like something that has been happening for millennia. It felt like this, this style of collaboration and, and getting together wasn't something new, but something that, that these spaces actually craved. This is what they're built for. So seeing that also at Dow Palace was, uh, was incredible. Seeing people talk about like a refi, refi retreat in Portugal and stuff and seeing all the, all, all the stuff that's coming out, it just, it feels like such a natural use of the space. Uli, do you have any thoughts on like either the use of the spaces or, or maybe the people curation that needs to happen in order to make these things actually feel, feel this way? Interesting question. I'm not an organizational theorist, but something I've noticed in terms of the way we seem to continue gathering at these types of events and this what we've been calling institutional way, meaning, you know, it's a bit more unstructured. It relies more on the people and their personalities versus their roles or, you know, duties. I think that there's something to say about, again, I don't know the history of this as it's documented, but I think Back in the day, maybe when these castles were in their heyday, a group of multidisciplinary groups of people gathered together, and there was a lot of serendipity in what they talked about and how they collaborated on things. And I think it made it more than the sum of its parts. And then 
maybe there was another time in history where like, no, we need more structure and we need to have conferences. And it's interesting because right after Dow Palace, I went to ECC and I love ECC. I mean, so much to learn, so many great talks, but it was markedly different, right? Like at ECC, there's speakers, there's guests, there's staffs. We rely a lot on sort of the roles of people. And as they come into the space where at Dow Palace and at Glitch, you know, these types of residency where, I mean, you're living with people for basically two weeks and you get to know them, you get to share ideas. And it's more about the personalities and what everyone brings, the skills that they have, the generosity that they offer. That's sort of what makes the event alive. And so I think in, in some ways, that kind of unstructured structure is a key ingredient to actually making this kind of thing work, which does harken back to the history of these spaces, I imagine. Maybe we I talk think about that Uli just made a really, really interesting point, which is absolutely true in this. ECC, these conferences, most events that we go to now, we've become very used to information intake through almost everything that we do, through the news that we read, the media that we take in, the events that we go to, the type of conversations that we even have. Most of the time, we're taking in information from a humongous variety of sources. And in the age of the internet, those sources have become vastly bigger than what we're used to historically. But what we don't have is an output. You know, every pressure valve needs an input and output. So if these conferences and these different media sources that we take information in from are the input, then we need somewhere to have an outlet to let those ideas flow, to write, to create. And I think that's what really Dowesco and Dow Pass stood for. And can I just build on that a little bit, actually, too? Um, you know, this interesting thing happens at ECC or East Denver or whatever conference it is where, you know, you sort of look over the agenda and you might plan your day one, the talks you want to see, you plan your day two. But yet, I mean, so many people don't even have tickets to the conference sort of show up because there's so many side events, there's so many people you want to see. And so there's, there's this whole kind of agenda and universe that actually happens outside of the conference. But with something like a Dow Palace, it allows for, actually, that is the way of the land. That is, that, that's how we do it every day, you know, as sort of things emerge on a daily basis without having to kind of set your agenda for the day. And, I think just reflecting one of my favorite, favorite moments at Dow Palace was actually every morning we would uh, go to the whiteboard and we would all kind of make a pitch of talk or workshop or brainstorm or whatever we wanted to hold and offer to others. Uh, and we did that by time. And I think it was day three or day four. I think there was a shock where everyone was super overwhelmed and it's like too much information, too intense, so much stuff. And so we actually tried to organize the day by space. <laughs> in the end, I think it was a massive failure in terms of anyone knowing where to go or what to do. But it was actually a huge success in, I mean, even just pushing this idea that what does structure look like in these types of gatherings. The organizing based on space was really fun. And I actually had a pretty productive day. This is also just kind of a lesson in like the event fills the space that you provide for it. And so like if you provide a space with a certain structure, it's going to fill that structure. And so on day one, we I laid out on the whiteboard Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and I split it into like hour blocks. And of course, it filled up because everybody, of course, wanted to offer offer what they had to say or host something or or, or get feedback. And then suddenly, like other people were looking at the whiteboard and thinking like, well, when am I going to get the chance to talk about this thing? Holy crap, I feel suffocated. Like, I mean, in a good way, but like suffocated with like information. And so, yeah, we just like erased the entire whiteboard 
And, uh, and that one day in the kitchen when we were like, okay, everybody, there's no longer the concept of time. If you want to talk about this topic, you're doing it in, uh, in we had nicknames for all the rooms. A formal verification was this like very formal dining room. This is the room where we'll talk about blockchain and nature today. And if you want to talk about families and Web3 and, and, and family support networks, that's going to be in the play to earn room where the foosball table is. And if you want to talk about an operating system for DAOs and governance, that's going to be in the cozy fireplace room with it. And then just you, people filter in throughout the day and they figure out where to go. Of course, some people were like, we walked into a room and the session had just happened, but we weren't allowed to talk about time. Uh, so <laughs> some parts of it were good. Some, But what I think it brought us to was like a very thoughtful way of thinking about like the days and the, and the spaces and the times. And so we did start to, I think, have like fewer sessions but longer sessions where we really had like a deep dive. People came, they contributed. If they had to leave for a moment, that was fine. But it was, it was like we had a, a few moments where we just kind of had to like break our conference mode and go into like residency mode. Yeah, completely right. And then one of the things, I mean, for me personally, the, the space day was the most productive day by far. And I noticed that there was this like interesting dynamic that emerged from it insofar as that when I would go into, let's say, the Daoesco room, even if nobody was there, the only thing I was working on was Daoesco. Somebody came in, they just saw an empty room and they said, oh, I'll, you know, I'll use it to work. And they started talking about Daoesco, even after like a couple of minutes. So inevitably, the theme of the room became what the room was designated to be. And who, no matter who came in, they all started working on that project. It was like this subconscious sort of thing. And then I started doing that by myself. You know, Even if nobody was there, I'd go into the governance room and all I could think about was governance and I'd go into the nature oracle room or I could think about was nature oracles and you know others were saying the same thing and then towards the end uh, you know we, we start finding ourselves in I guess a much more efficient organizational structure where people start actually filling the rooms for longer sessions and it only happened towards the second week so the first week was almost like a natural orientation second week was when we finally got used to it we knew everybody the sort of initial hype sort of came down and then we started working much much more actively and it was on thursday or friday so second to last day where i started really getting in the rhythm of things which is why i wish we would have had a third week and why for me this whole idea of the long-term incubation space was much much more validated and i guess i hope it was for was the same for the others too for sure. Yeah, those last couple of days, I just felt like we really did get into a rhythm. So let's imagine that we did have a third week. What what might have been the topics or, or structures or, or things that we work on? I guess some of us kind of had a third week. They all went to ETCC and stayed in Airbnb together, which is not quite a castle. We're seeing, I'm seeing some people like in a couple of weeks in the forest. Like, what should we, what, what do you think comes next? Like what, like when we all get together, are we just going to instantly fall back into like this type of a co-working collaboration mode where we're like, okay, um, we're in the, we're in the forest. This tree is the Daoesco tree. If you want to talk about Daoesco, go to this tree. Do you think that that type of that type of culture will will sustain? Did we do enough to kind of build the fabric there? I guess I would say after, if we use Glitch as an example, which was the residency where Isaac and I met at Prima organized. After uh, some things we expected continued, and many things we didn't expect continued or were created. Uh, Dao Palace being one of them, uh, we didn't leave Glitch saying, "Okay, we're going to do another." residency in a different castle in Germany. Um, it just sort of emerged and happened, I think, as a result of the close relationships that we had built. And so for me, success looks like after one of these events, if relationships were formed that were strong enough, where people even continue to be on a chat together, even if it's social, don't know what kind of project 
uh, to work on yet, but there is a commitment to at least be in touch and open to a project starting. I mean, a good example, I think when I said goodbye to Will Pepper, we agreed, we don't know what the project is yet, but we're absolutely going to work on something together and just keep looking for those opportunities. Yeah, I, I echo that. And I think that, I guess when I came, when, when we were organizing the event, there's some part of me that thought that we were going to be coming out of it after two weeks and there's going to be sort of tangible called five to 10 projects, which were completed during those two weeks. And we're able to sort of show them around and go, look, all this was completed during those two weeks at Down Palace. But it became very clear within a couple of days that the real value of what's emerging there is a indestructible community bond. And that is so much more important than these two weeks. And that's where I really began understanding the value of these type of executional events as opposed to, say, a hackathon, for example. Because within a hackathon, you're effectively coupled with you know a few people over a certain period of time with a projected outcome that you're to deliver at the end of those two weeks. And everything that you do is based on that one thing that you're doing, that one project. But here, when you have these many ideas, these many people of diversity floating around, then what becomes so much more valuable is if you can create a bond that stands the test of decentralization. <laughs> so the test of work from home. Because if we're able to remember the kind of bonds that we had with every single individual going forward and the projects that emerge from these bonds are valuable, then we're looking at long-term value. We're not looking at short-term value, which has been quite prevalent in the Web3 space. A lot of people are building short-term projects. They aren't really looking at very sustainable business models or project models or research. And now all of a sudden you're starting to see a complete shift in the mindset. And this is kind of an indicator of that where people are saying, we actually want to build something that has long-term value and we're going to initiate it in true Web3 fashion with a community that has long-term value. And that became quite obvious to me at the end of those two weeks. So really what I'm enjoying seeing now is, you know, topic of Daoesco. I got a message from Vanessa this morning and she was like, I'm just speechless at how involved everybody is with this project. They're all pitching in. They're all, you know, allocating resources. They're all showing us how they can contribute. They're all craving to keep this community alive, which was the exact wording that Prima used. We all need to crave for this community to stay alive. And if that was achieved after two weeks, then that was success right there. And that's, that's all that matters, really. Speaking of P and executional relationships, I was going to ask us to maybe define what an institution is because that was such a big uh, topic of discussion. But I think you just did. I, th I think that you did just define it when talking about it's a coming together of individuals that are building towards long-term value. And the output is not necessarily measurable in a way that you might not have uh, KPIs and capital and specific things. But what you're building is this bond and network between people, which leads to this craving for community and, and craving for a common purpose. And so that to me is what an, an institution looks like, which is when you've built a strong fabric among the community and everybody is moving towards a common purpose. And it's something that doesn't have to be tied to uh, a specific space. It doesn't need institutional structure to support it. Um, and it's just something that persists. The first time I met Jordan from Archive, who was one of the residents, he just like he had just arrived, dropped down his suitcase and came over and sat at a sat in, in a session where the idea was, OK, everybody, what do you think execution means? Um, and that he was just kind of like thrown into the fire in that way. And I was very confused at that time. But I think that it I think that we actually got to a pretty simple definition. Would you guys generally agree with that that definition? I, th I think it's a really good definition uh, to me. And, and it was funny because you're asking me for, can you define execution? I'm not sure I can, but I guess by virtue of the experience, 
you were saying I might have just done that. I suppose if you if you use it that way, then executions like the litmus test for the spirit of Web three. And so far as that Web three takes focus away, you know, in a, in a world where IP is where, where less value is being added to the idea of an intellectual property of a product or the kind of you know security barriers that you put around it to keep competitors from stealing your ideas. Everything's open source. So you're taking away value from the idea of a product and you're allocating it to the community. And now if you allocate that value to the community and the community becomes that much more important to the overall survival of the space, the next institution can be the facilitator or the test to see whether or not you've succeeded in that. And I just might add to that, I think long-term value is one of the important parts of institutional theory, as you both said. Um, the only thing I might add is uh, just how we think about institutional theory in relationship to whatever institutions are. And maybe, you know, we're kind of using terms like people or community a little bit loosely, but I think they're really important to distinguish from how individuals might be identified within an institution. So and maybe I touched on this a little bit before too, Within an institution, we see the, like CEO and VPs and different levels with different permissions and voting rights or privileges, things like this. But it's less about the individuals who inhabit those roles, but more about the roles that make the structure of the institution versus the institution, which I don't know exactly the definition of institution. And maybe it's something about the personalities and the skills that come to the conversation. And that kind of fabric that you were talking about, that, about Isaac, making that strong enough so that it can exist, whether it's sort of a, an intentional living community or whether it's a DAO that is totally distributed in, in a trustless environment. Or, but I, I think it's, it's, it's more about what are the personalities and skills that individuals bring, not the roles that they fulfill. Speaking of the intentional living communities, I think a lot of the reason the event worked is because we had people like you and Jesse Kate and, and Robbie and, and uh, P and people that have kind of lived in this type of this style of uh, collaboration and co-living and intentional community building. Can you talk about like maybe what the, your background in that type of environment and how that led to us thinking about how to organize the event and, and be together? Yeah, I, I think it was a really wonderful surprise how many people, and not just from the embassy network, but how many others had an intentional community living experience, whether it was a co-op in their university or, um, but they, they had existed at some point in their life with other people and had a shared governance framework and decision-making. And so I um, lived at the embassy for, call it the past decade. During that time, we took our management of some other buildings, which might help to seed some of those communities. but. The really fascinating thing to me is I came to discover DAOs just within the past year. I'm fairly new to the space, but just learning, uh, we called it different things, but how many of the concepts are really the same? For example, we did participatory budgeting. We had a tool for that. We used another tool called Lumio for voting on proposals and making the case for them. So we did a lot of the things that DAOs do just with a different set of tools so the tooling looked different, but the intentions were very much the same. I think what made it a bit different is that it wasn't a totally trustless environment, which is, I think, very unique to DAOs and super fascinating about them. With intentional living, you come to know, I mean, there's an interview process, you get to know people on a very personal level. After the embassy, I came to France and 
bought a farmhouse and set up another intentional community here at the farmhouse. And it's in the French countryside. So it's not in the center of San Francisco where everyone travels, um, which is fascinating because having a rural intentional community, and I think we'll learn this with Dawesco too, um, it presents a very different set of challenges when you're in a place that's hard to get to <laughs> and you're not just sort of in the center of a city. I think it's fascinating. And I think that more DAOs should talk to more intentional living communities because I think there are a lot of shared values and a lot of shared experiences that can be portable to each other. And I think that you're just touching on the idea of, you know, how difficult it is to get to a rural space. But generally speaking, if we're looking at DAOSCO, one of the sort of key takeaways for me was we're looking at creating a very forward-thinking, very technologically advanced incubation space in an area that has increasingly become distant in terms of the progression from larger urban areas, which become more agglomerated, grow, you know, have more talent being attracted to build, to create. You know, you've got these tech hubs like Silicon Valley, you know, uh, Seattle, Berlin, London. And then the rural areas are becoming more and more distant. They're more and more stuck. In Bukeberg, for example, the majority of the population is still very, very keen to use cash. They mostly don't use credit cards just because this is something that they're used to and they're comfortable with. So there is a challenge, of course, in integrating a type of community that's this far advanced into something like Bukeberg, into these kind of rural areas. But there's a major, major benefit that outweighs the difficulties that need to be overcome. And some of those are visible in the current conversations around Dalesco, where people already, only a week after the event finished, were talking about how can we actually give back to the community? How can we feed some of the ideas and some of the brain pools, some of the experiences from around the world back into the community and help you know better some of these people's lives, make some of these systems that are perhaps flawed or antiquated more efficient and there's a wonderful win-win in this because on the first side you know in web3 we're usually focused on a target segment that is very web3 native in terms of the user experience user interfacing in terms of the products that we use we normally assume that people have some broad understanding of what web3 is how it works and how they should be using it how to set up a wallet but if you suddenly have this kind of community like bookerberg that needs to adopt some of these products that we're maybe tailoring some of these products for to test them because we can, because people are willing to talk to this community that's living there now and willing to take up some of the products and, you know, understand how they work. Then all of a sudden you're tailoring these products to community that has very, very little touch to technology. And so you need to make it as easily accessible, as easily usable as possible. Meaning that as an example, if you were to build a product that's tailored to the citizens of Bookerberg, then this is a product that is as scalable as possible worldwide to help people around the world with equally little association to technology or experience in it. And then it becomes a wonderful win-win. You know, Bickerberg, the rural areas suddenly have an opportunity to get closer to the kind of advancements that urban centers have and actually not be disenfranchised, not be pulled away from them. And then on the side of the incubators, on the side of the participants, it's a wonderful test data use case and also something that forces them to build products that are actually usable by everyday people for, and then, you know, scalable around the world. I'm so glad you brought that up, Teddy, because I, yeah, just while there's a certain set of challenges that come with rural environments, I think the opportunity space is also pretty unique in that I think if you're able to build a close relationship, one that is trusted with the local community, there's a completely different type of penetration and adoption that can happen. And also I think for DAOs or whoever product builders or actually having access to a set of users who are willing and open, but just don't yet know how to use products is a really unique testing ground for the product. So 
I think that uh, because of the close relationship that Brokerberg has with the local community, it'll make it a really, really unique space to go and build something. I think the shared purpose that we all identified throughout this event is relatable, I think, to to folks in these in these communities, much more so than like DeFi and NFTs and everything that's kind of captured the public's media attention of crypto. When we talk about what we're excited about, and I'm speaking for myself, but I think I can speak for, for others at the event, it's about the ability of the Web3 space to help grant people more individual autonomy and agency and freedom to opt in to what they're doing, the systems that they choose to engage with, the systems they choose not to engage with. And I think that starting from a discussion point like that, it becomes much more relatable and tangible versus something that I can ignore this all. Talk to me in 20 years when crypto is running the, maybe like the replacing ACH or international wires, but like it, the actual mission of individual autonomy and agency, I think resonates with a lot of people. Do you, do you guys agree? Or there, is there anybody that hears about that and thinks like, no, 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 thank you. I would expand on that because I do think that it's extremely attractive, but I also think that there's, you know, different incentives for different types of people. The one thing that binds them all together is that, you know, by definition, we're herd animals, you know, naturally speaking. And so this is us looking back at our evolutionary past. So COVID's given us an idea of what it means to be a herd animal when really you're not surrounded by individuals and DAOs are an expansion of that insofar as that they communicate online and are primarily decentralized. But what I found interesting about DAOs beyond that, beyond lockdowns, beyond the way that we were coordinating was exactly this, was was the fact that you suddenly have communities that are formed on significantly more criteria than was previously possible, mostly because of the geographical restrictions that were put in place. So if I were living in Bukeberg, then I can only form so many communities because there's only so many people. And most of the interests that these people are aligned by are usually the same, might have to do with their jobs, might have to do with agriculture, local real estate, local economics, whatever it is, but it's usually the same thing. And then all of a sudden with DAOs, you can align communities by interests, passions, missions, values, lots of different types of criteria that go well beyond what we traditionally created communities from. And so this becomes an incredibly attractive offer to people of all sorts of backgrounds, where at the moment in these early renditions, at least from what I saw at DAO Palace, most of these people say, yep, I understand that incentive. I understand how that can drive people to join a DAO or to work on DAOs. But right now, us, the early actors, are really focused around how can we make these communities continue existing without wide-scale and coordination failure. And so that's that's really what bound it together. And I am very interested in seeing how an inhabitant of Bukeberg, you know, maybe even at age 65 or 70, might suddenly have access to interests and passions that they were never allowed to access because they just simply were restricted by the geographical boundaries. All of a sudden, they're open to really focus, contribute, and own a part of something that they are truly passionate about, which they couldn't find anyone else for beforehand. And as such, you know, as a big collective, they're much more able to mobilize and have much bigger buying power when aligned around these values and interests. And that's really what drives just this idea of, of community aligned by new criteria and the power that lies behind it. You know, I just want to add that this idea of autonomy and agency, and I think what we see over and over again at these types of gatherings, these types of residencies is that, in fact, everyone who attends them is high agency. It's not, it's not a special skill. It's 
I think about we make the space for it to happen and everyone is able to demonstrate it. And it's actually what makes each event very unique. I mean, you know, the event is as much as everyone contributes. And as we've, I think, shown in these past two events, Glitch and Dow Palace, both, is that when the configuration allows for people to step up and step in and come to the table and bring their ideas to life and have other people applaud them and be part of it and participate in them, it really works. I mean, it is coordination success without ever having to really coordinate or, or organize. The only coordination that's happening is just making the space to let it happen. And so I wonder, you know, how does that then extend to, to DAOs when we all become centralized and we're not in the same space? You know, is the same type of freedom or openness to high agency or any individual becoming high agency is that created? I think that's a question. I don't know the answer, but we've seen it. We've seen it, experienced it. I think one of the things that we also struggled with perhaps is about how much DAOs need to interface with the traditional systems, with the traditional legal system. Can they exist like purely as online digital organizations or where are the places that it needs to tie into the the legacy governments to, or the legacy like uh, economic systems? Um, and we had a pretty unique opportunity to speak to Philip, former vice chancellor at, at the event, about how we should or should not be engaging with with institutions, with governments, um, and how we can kind of set DAOs up for mass adoption, perhaps by working together. I was I was curious, uh, Teddy, about that day where where he came and visited. Do you have any like takeaways from learnings from him, or perhaps like takeaways that he had about how DAOs and governments may work together? So I was talking to Philip again the other day. First and foremost, it's opaque insofar as that we are still extremely early in the DAO space, and that has become obvious both to him and to myself. So what we're seeing is that DAOs are a tremendous, unprecedented way of mobilizing large groups of people, large collectives, and at least until now, ways of managing online protocols or fundraising. But what was much more interesting to him was how then they can create more aggregated buying power as opposed to larger institutional opponents, if you will. So the thesis from his side was really, and I agree with this, there's a place for both. You know, not everything will necessarily be a DAO. There will be a lot of DAOs. They'll have a classification of their own uh, in which they mobilize people in completely new ways and are ways of um, exerting interest, but that they will in some way or another, need to interact with centralized institutions and governments. The way in which this would happen should be relatively similar to the ways in which traditional organizations interact with governments or regulators. But what it takes first and foremost is for regulators to understand what exactly it means to have a DAO or where it is applicable. And that's where Philip agreed, where I also thought this was something very valuable, is that what we need is we need a indisputable validation use case. We need something that regulators can agree with that's ideally focused on one of the key issues regulators around the world are trying to solve, especially when it comes to, you know, poverty or wealth divide that is, you know, increasing across the world. And how can we tackle that using DAOs? How can we give people access to resources in a manner that regulators cannot dispute, that they understand? And once that validation use case is there, the rest kind of falls in place. It doesn't need to mean that the DAO space has suddenly finally been born and everything's running smoothly. It will continue developing itself as we go along. But that might be the point in which regulators will begin interacting with DAOs, where we have 
Dauplements, as Ven was always saying, right? But, uh, you know, having heard from Philip as well, it was kind of a matter of he doesn't exactly know where it is going to go. All he knows is that they're going to play a major role in global politics just because of their way of mobilizing people and creating almost like sub-governments, you know, that are native online. Can I just add something to that? On this question of what is the interfacing with regulators, I have two experiences. The first is I used to work for the mayor of San Francisco, and it was at a time when the city's unemployment rate was, I think it's the highest it was it had ever been in 20 years or something. It was at like 9.4%. And so all these tech companies were sort of being welcomed in to create jobs. Fast forward 10 years, People were throwing rocks at Google buses. Gentrification was happening. It was like, go away, tech. We don't want you here. I remember there was a Crunchies, Tech Crunchies, to host this thing called the Crunchies, which was like an award ceremony for tech. And across the street, a group had organized what they called the Crappies. And it was giving awards, fake awards, to all of the terrible things that tech companies were doing to the city. And the reason why I bring this up is because we actually had to stretch. We, I mean, San Francisco had the first the nation's first open data policy, had to figure out how to work with Uber and Lyft and Airbnb and this thing called the sharing economy. And luckily, I think San Francisco city government was very open to these types of conversations, uh, maybe a little bit more so than other cities, because as we did talk to other cities, what we saw happen was amazing technologies, amazing innovations and concepts just getting shut down at the will of one single individual who maybe just didn't get it. And so I think San Francisco worked because there was a group of sort of insiders who really wanted to find a way to embrace the technology. I think in other cities, companies and technologies like Uber and Lyft and sharing economy stuff was adopted, not because of the insiders, but just because of sort of brute force outsiders. And so while I think it's important to have the quote unquote diplomats or the diplomats who can represent DAOs to regulators, I also think there's a role to play. And I think this came up while Philip was there. I think Dan said something really interesting about this, uh, which was to the effect of, you know, how much can you stop us, actually? I think there are ways, of course, centralized banks and governments can stop sort of DeFi in its tracks. But I don't know if the same thing can happen with DAOs. And so I, I just bring this up because I think I think I actually learned this from Prima, that there is a way of thinking about how change happens and that there's a role for the insiders, there's a role for the outsiders, and then there's this other role for what's called the beyonders. So I think all of these things are really necessary for change to happen. And so as we think about sort of the change management that will happen with Web3 DAOs and all of the components that make up this space, sort of enabling all of these things to happen and not try to shut down, oh no, the outsiders, they're just rebels and trying to make damage. Like, I don't think that's the right way to think about it. I think they're just as important as the insiders who want to make peace. I completely agree. I think that, you know, one of the things that is important to me as well here in terms of the regulation is that this is almost like an antidote to this wealth divide, to this sort of disenfranchisement of, of individual people. And that, you know, there's going to be some sort of internal regulatory system, like an autonomous regulatory system within the DAO space that's not necessarily attached to any individual country, but more prevalent within the Web3 space. The reason why I say that is because while DAOs are an incredible manner of coordinating masses, there's also some dangers in there because like we we're saying, they're associated to interests, passions, missions, values. And some of these missions, values 
you know, might not align with others. There might be a far right-wing DAO, right? There might be an ISIS DAO. Nothing's to stop that. And this is something that frightens a lot of people and that frightens regulators as well. So what we need to figure out is, A, how do we understand ethics within the DAO space going forward? Do we need to redefine them? Where is the limit to what is possible or what should be done? And secondly, how can regulators embrace DAOs and enable them for their own communities, perhaps working together with them so that more people have access to them in countries that might be a bit more prohibitive, as opposed to just blanket banning them? And yes, I agree. How far can you stop us? Technically, you can't. Not really. But pushing it into the underground is going to make this process significantly more difficult, and it's going to incentivize people to, from the get-go, interact with things that might be amoral, that might be hurtful to others, that might be morally or ethically incorrect or questionable. And that's really where the role of the regulator comes in, is to say, let's define what kind of DAOs are are really, really a positive net effect on the broader population, as opposed to those that might damage it. And I just want to highlight that we've been kind of We've been using regulator, regulation, regulator with a capital R here. And I think there is a sort of smaller bite-sized effort that we can and we are making. And I think actually many of these conversations came up while at Dow Palace. And they were were the ones that I personally found very inspiring and and useful for my day-to-day. I came to Dow Palace asking the question, should my company be a Dow, my um, Delaware C Corporation? Should it be a Dow? What does that look like? The realization I had by the end was, I don't think it should be. I think that there's a role for Delaware C corporations to play in the Web3 space. But more interestingly, uh, is how does it interface with a DAO? Like legally, what does that interface look like? What are the rights, permissions? How does it share equity? How does it share value tokens? And that is not standard right now. There isn't a lot of legal precedent for that. And so I think two things. One is that could be figuring out the corporate interface I mean, this is, corporations are extremely regulated entities. And so attaching DAOs to those is sort of, I think, a small bite-sized way of showing kind of the power of DAOs as they relate to an existing form that's familiar. And then second thing is, once we can have these sort of legal interfaces in place and make them more standard, then we can start to see not just Web3 tech startups interfacing with DAOs, but we could maybe even see our local small businesses interfacing with DAOs. We could see CSAs and nonprofits and community groups interfacing with DAOs. So I think one very important little step with a little case is really just figuring out legal interfaces for for DAOs. Yeah, very much agree. Kind of get towards towards wrapping up. I just wanted to make a prediction, I think, about about how I think regulators will see the value of DAOs. And to me, it's going to be something like Opolis or WorkDAO, where we had both represented at DAO Palace. These are both systems that are built for the more international high agency individual who is working for many organizations, maybe some centralized companies, maybe some are DAOs. Some might exist in Asia, some might be in Europe, some might be in the US. And there's this growing amount of people that truly are like global citizens. They're not anchored in one one place. They're not anchored to one company. And it seems to be the direction that work is moving in, at least for few of us, but hopefully many more soon. And the traditional systems are not built to provide benefits or systems to those types of people. They have no safety net. In fact, they have like seven countries chasing them down to all pay taxes in the same countries. And so what DAOs, I think, provide, and especially those two, 
is a system where you can anchor people and this way of working in something that regulators understand and also provide a certain amount of benefits and just baseline access to care for individuals that they're not going to be able to untangle. Like these systems are going to become entangled with the legacy institutions just by the nature of how people are becoming more global and more uh, and more active. And you won't be able to ignore DAOs once a significant portion of your citizens are, are getting benefits and care through those systems rather than through the traditional government channels. Uh, if I had to make a prediction, that's going to be where they see the true benefit and also realize that they have to take it seriously and figure out a way to recognize and interface with them. Maybe I'll ask each of you for a some sort of prediction or closing statement as well. Teddy, do you want to go uh, next? It's very hard to follow up on that one, but I'll give it a try. <laughs> DAOs are not going away. That's uh, that's number one. Um, to me, DAOs are, uh, you know, there's this there's this idea called critical theory of technology. Critical theory of technology assumes that you're always reassessing the relation of humans to technology, and I think that DAOs are a wonderful example of that because at the same time, critical theory of technology also assumes that as as we progress, as uh, some sort of development might go in one direction that might disenfranchise others, there will be a natural balance that occurs either by protest or by people leveraging themselves and their communities to counteract whatever that is. And in this instance, it's, you know, sort of the disenfranchisement of Web2 as opposed to the grand majority of the people. And DAOs are kind of like the counter movement to that. And the second reason why I think that DAOs are going to continue existing is this age old you know, argument or reality, depending on how you see it, that artificial intelligence will at some point sooner or later replace a grand majority of jobs than a traditional workspace, which we're already seeing. Um, initially, we sold by outsourcing, you know, via the internet. Uh, cheaper jobs were somewhere else in the world, as opposed to those being hired in, say, the United States or in the European Union. And then people would lose their jobs and they'd have no safety net. You know, they'd have sort of three-month pay gap and then that's it. And now all of a sudden, when AI comes in and is able to take on more roles within traditional organizations because they're simply more efficient, because they simply can't be matched by human input, then what we're able to do, the way that we're able to live and work, becomes much more based on what we're genuinely passionate about. And so DAOs offer that opportunity to grand majorities of people that suddenly want to work one, two, three, four jobs on things that they really care about. But the major difference here is they don't just work for that mission, they actually own a part of it. And that, to me, is an unbelievable, unprecedented incentive, you know, I guess, comparable to the scale or magnitude as the introduction of the joint corporate stock in 1862. And that's really what we're looking at. And so I would, you know, encourage everybody to embrace that. And I would encourage everybody to look into how we can make it as efficient and, you know, as, as beneficial to everybody as possible. I think that DAOs will be the future of work that so many people have dreamed of. I think they offer a sense of integrity, a sense of freedom, a sense of agency, um, just so many critical pieces that make us feel human and, and, and make us want to work. So my hope, though, is that one of the biggest coordination failures will be if DAOs cannot figure out ways to really pay the contributors and provide the real safety net that's needed. And I was very inspired to see at Dow Palace, single parents, single mothers with multiple children uh, who have been able to string together Dow jobs and feel a sense of respect and dignity for their work and still support their families. 
So I think more of that, I hope more of that. And I think you're absolutely right. What WorkDAO and Opolis are doing is the future. It's enabling this type of future. But I, I, I have also seen DAOs unable to support their contributors. And I think there will that will be a natural filter. But any ways that I or our community that we formed around DAO Palace can help DAOs to figure out how to do that, I think it's just super important for that future. Hope you enjoyed today's episode of DAO or Never. Make sure to subscribe at logos.xyz slash podcast and follow us on Twitter at 0xlogos so you never miss out on any of the latest happenings in the DAO world. It's DAO or Never. Never.